worship the Lord together. O great and majestic creator of this vast universe, whose heart is touched by our feeble prayers, who at the price of your own son's blood have made a way that we can enter into your presence unworthy as we are. Father, we come at this moment of crisis, this moment of turmoil in this world and in the hearts of men. Father, we know that you are sifting us as wheat. Father, we pray that our faith may become purified, our zeal redirected, that we can leave behind fear and doubt and resentment and all the emotions that are swirling and trapping people into division and confusion and apathy. Father, we want to come to your living word. Pray that it could brightly shine as a lamp unto our feet and light to our path and would clear away the fog of this world that bombards with truths and half-truths and lies until we give up even trying to discern the truth. But your word is truth. Father, we pray this morning for ears that would hear and not only hear, but apply your word. Father, we thank you for the power of your word that has even been able to extend to the sister of our dear Agnes, to Marta, and create a miracle in her heart. And Lord, to draw even her, her uh, brother and son, we just pray that you would also continue to heal her body as well from the cancer. And Lord, that that light would be, she would be given more time to shine a light for you as she has been doing. Father, we pray for this light to shine here and change lives. Lord, that we wouldn't sit on the fence, but Lord, that the flame could be fanned into bright flame. Lord, that we could press toward the mark, not just sit back in our homes. Lord, that we could have the sense of urgency, the sense of passion and all-out surrender and dying to self that we see in our dear brother Paul. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, inspire your servant. Lord, meet his needs also and strengthen him and that your living word could accomplish its eternal purpose in each one of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This um, past week, we had a, a couple of sad occurrences where we had to say goodbye, or farewell, not goodbye, farewell to our 
children and grandchildren who had lived with us for a few years until they could get themselves established and on their feet. And um, they were strong and so are we until that time when they were waiting in the car to, for them to sail. And then the tears came. Um, our little grandson, Yosha, was inconsolable. As the worldly song says, parting is grief. And it is. But we were trying to console him and ourselves that we're going to see each other again. As a matter of fact, when you get home, call us. Daddy's going to get you a cell phone. <laughs> call him anytime you want, right? And then that night we called and they were reassured that, wow, we, 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 you, we're still alive. We can still see each other. We can still talk to each other. And there was joy. And now when they come back, we don't treat them as family. We treat them as guests. <laughs> that means anything to you. Now it's every time we see them, it's a big hug and a kiss. And we value the time we have with each other. My daughter also went to New Brunswick as we prayed for her to start her life there because it's cheaper, perhaps more conducive to their wanting to have a more quiet life. We pray that she'll never forget God. The one she grew up to know as a creator and yet not as her Christ. When I look into Philippians chapter 3, Paul the apostle was on the verge of being executed for his faith. Not sure exactly how many years. Some believe that it took him about two or three, two to, about two years or so, maybe three, before he was finally sentenced. In in the Second uh, Timothy chapter two, Paul says, "At his first hearing, at his first trial before Nero, he says nobody stood with him. They abandoned him." They fled for fear. And he knew his departure was at hand. He was leaving. He knew that on the beaches of Ephesus when almost in Elijah-like fashion he went to visit his fellow brethren to say his goodbyes before Elijah was taken up in chariots of fire. But Paul had a hope. Paul had a hope. 
In 1 Philippians 1, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. If I am still here with you, I have a fruit of my labor. And I have to choose between the two. It's a difficult choice to stay or to go. But nevertheless, to abide in the flesh now is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of your faith. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for me by my coming to you again. He had this hope that he would go back and visit them. And he was, there was some uh, legend says that he was released and taken back in. He had prison sentences in Caesarea. He had a prison sentence in, in Rome. But regardless of his circumstances, you have to admire, you have to admire his attitude, rejoicing all the time and encouraging his people to rejoice in the Lord. He opens up chapter 3 and says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And in chapter 4 he says, And again I say rejoice. We opened up the singing this morning with, Though trials abound and come. But we know on what foundation we have built. And so may the storms come, may the billows come in, may the winds blow but those that have Jesus Christ as their foundation not only are stable, but they have a hope that they will see their loved ones again. He says, to me, to write the same things to you, to me is indeed not grievous, but it is safe. If, if you look at uh, Peter, he says the same things. 2 Peter 1, 3, 13. And notice that Peter was also about to die. He knew that he was going to die. He was in Rome as, also, as legend tells us. He gives greetings from Babylon, which is supposed to be another name for Rome. Yea, I think it is meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, the same term that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, he's waiting for it, after my decease to have these things also in remembrance, that we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we have made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, had received, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter remembered those words. He was there when it happened. And now he is recalling, even as the Lord had declared to him, he's going to die. But he speaks about joy. He speaks about rejoicing. He speaks about the hope 
that is given to him. And he says that he is putting them into remembrance of these things before he leaves. That's the legacy that he is being, he's giving to the church over which he had oversight. And sometimes when you read the scripture, when I read the scripture, we have read these verses before, we have heard them preached about and expounded, and when we read it, we say, I've read that before. Oh, we sort of gloss over it. And it doesn't impact us as much. As much as when the time that we really need it. Have you ever gone through a stage like that where it didn't seem to bounce at you, but when you were in need, when you were looking for comfort, when you were looking for answers, when you're looking for God's grace and mercy, then these words just pop out at you. They hit you. And so Paul is saying, it's, it's, it's not a big, onerous work that I'm doing here and giving you the gospel, but it's safe for you. Why? Because people forget. As the song goes, remember I'm human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, O Lord. What did he have to remind them of? Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision, the mutilators. Beware of them. They were very prominent in Paul's day. And later on became even more so in John's day. The deceivers. The Judaizers to begin with. Then the Gnostics. With their false teachings. And every one of those false teachers... Their goal was to move their focus off of Christ and onto something else. That's, that is a very clever, deceitful tactic of the devil. To move the focus off of Christ and onto something else. Paul, whoever the writer of Hebrews said, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, if he's the author and the finisher of our faith, why would we want to look on something else? Why do we want to be distracted onto something else? Because there were these, the other, the other apostle calls them brute beasts. They're brute beasts. They maraud, they terrorize, they destroy. Because they can't understand something. They can't accept something from the scriptures. They can't accept what Jesus said or what the Apostle Paul says. It doesn't make sense. So I'm going to make sure everybody else doesn't accept that either. Misery loves company. And what were they doing? He called them mutilators. The concision, the cutters. Galatian talks, Paul writes to the Galatians, the same theme. This, this was a prominent error. This was a prominent heresy during his day. That you don't just believe in Jesus. You don't just accept Jesus. You've got to accept the Jesus plus the law. You've got to accept Jesus plus physical circumcision. Because man has to always have 
some kind of control in his own life that when he's doing something, that it makes him worthy before God. So it's not just Jesus, but that I have done something which somehow imputes righteousness to me, what I have done. This sacrament, this rite, this deed. And Paul says in a pun, Paul in several, on several occasions used a play on words and some humour to show and expose the folly of the teachings of his day, the false teachings of his day. In Galatians he says, these that want to circumcise you, I wish they were cut off. I wish they were excised. But Paul says, in response to that, because circumcision was a sign of the covenant, the sign of the covenant that God first gave to, to, to Abraham on the eighth day of the, after birth, you, you circumcised the male. And that was then given to Moses on the eighth day you circumcised the male. And this was the sign that distinguished the Hebrews from all others. Circumcision. It was a sign. And Paul says, yeah, I believe in circumcision. Of course I believe in circumcision. He was himself circumcised the eighth day. He believes in circumcision. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a pure Hebrew. There were Greek Hebrews and, and pure Hebrews. There were those that were just sort of perhaps like modern day Christians that, that say they're Christian but they attend church once a year, maybe at Christmas or Easter. But he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the, the, the cream of the crop. He said... He was of the tribe of Benjamin, the elite warrior tribe that was almost eliminated. Left down to 600 men, if I'm not mistaken. And touching the law, I was, I was a Pharisee. I had graduated. I, had re I have reached the, 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 the upper echelon. I, I am the cream of the crop. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a discerner of the law. I'm the interpreter of the law. Concerning zeal, no one could touch me. Man, I persecuted that church. I persecuted the church. I was hailing them to prison. I was even at the feet of Stephen when he was stoned. I even gave the thumbs down that they should kill him, they should stone him. He was a persecutor. No one could, no one could question the credentials of Paul. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So he agrees that circumcision is a sign of the covenant. But in verse 3 he says, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. In Colossians chapter 2, it talks about we have been circumcised not with the circumcision made with hands. We have been born again. We have been bought with a price. 
That death certificate that was on the cross meant for me, Christ took it and put it on his cross. I was paid for. I was redeemed. And I was born again by the Spirit of God. And that's a circumcision that was not made with hands. In that circumcision, it was the world that was cut off from me. He said, we are the circumcision. We believe in the circumcision. But the circumcision, as he says in Romans also, of the heart. The heart has been cut away, the dross and the fat and the evil and the corruption. We've been placed on a new foundation. So Paul was trying to teach the church of the Philippians... Don't let these people, these false prophets, these false teachers, take away your joy. Because the basis of your joy is not what you do, is not your good deeds or even your good intentions. The basis of our joy is the security that we have in Jesus Christ is the assurance that we have in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let me turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm so thankful for the Apostle Paul. I'm so thankful that if anyone appreciated grace, it was Paul. He saw himself, as we just read, he was... He counted everything that he did in the law as done. All the ritual, religious activities that he did was done. In Romans chapter 5 he says, But God commended us, verse 8, God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were righteous. Even... The, 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 the evangelists say, I, I believe it was Luke, for Christ came not to save, or Jesus came not for the sinners, but, or for the, for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. The joy in God is the it comes from the, the full recognition and understanding that we have been saved from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not our own righteousness which merits it, but the merit that is in Christ Jesus. It is the righteousness of Christ on which I can base my confidence my faith, and my salvation. 
And if that's what gives me joy, then when I take my eyes off Christ, what have I to base my joy on? Myself? You see, you see what the issue here with the false teachers were? They wanted to remove their focus of Christ onto others, onto yourselves, onto what you can do. And when you look upon yourself and you see yourself say, oh boy, what a pitiful soul I am. Oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's what it boils down to. That's what Paul came to the conclusion of. I was reminded of a beautiful hymn which we sing in the Zion Sub, Zion Sub 221. We often sing the other one, To Me Free Grace, on the same melody, but this is a beautiful, beautiful words in Zion Sub 221. Now I have found the one foundation that my faith anchored firmly grounds, laid long before the world's creation in my Redeemer's holy wounds. The one foundation that shall stay when earth and heaven pass away, when earth and heaven pass away. O oh, depth of mercy, thus revealing how in Christ's death sins disappear. In him all wounds find perfect healing. There is no condemnation here. For Jesus' blood through earth and sky doth ever mercy, mercy cry. Look at verse 4. Whenever I, in looking over the finest deeds my days provide, much imperfection must discover or boasting then is set aside yea this my comfort here shall be the Lord is merciful to me and that's exactly what Paul was saying look at my deeds look what I've done look at my credentials he says there but Dung, they're but refuge, refuse, they're but sewer. He didn't say they were okay, but Christ is better. He said, they are worthless. What you do with worthless things, you throw them away. You throw them onto the dung heap, as Jesus said, of salt that has lost its savour. Fit for the dung hill. Paul realised that in Christ Jesus, he has no room for confidence in the flesh. That's what he says, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it was. He says, therefore, or was it 10 or 11? Therefore, I know no man after the flesh. I know no man after the flesh. That old man is dead. He's gone. He's buried. And that's when some people want to go back into sin and, and start if you will, experimenting and, 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 and trying to bring back the good old days. Paul says, what's wrong with you? Why do you let sin have dominion over you? Count it. 
Put it to your account. You're dead. You're dead in Christ. Why are you going back to seek the living among the dead as they did for looking for Christ's body? The angel said to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? Christ is not dead, he's alive. And why do we go seek the living among the dead if we are dead with Christ? What Paul is saying here to the, this is not just a a simple thing of, you know, forget about the Lord. He's saying that your joy And your hope in Christ is your foundation for life. If you don't trust in Christ, if you don't trust in his death and resurrection, above everything, you have no foundation for your life. Many people in this world think that your beginning is random and your end is vain. And if that's the case, everything in between is meaningless. If your beginning is random, you're just a random piece of matter here upon this earth, and your end is vain, it means nothing, then everything else in between is meaningless. That's what Paul is saying. Don't let these false teachers, these dogs, deceive you. Take the shift off Jesus Because then you will lose the basis of your hope, of your security. You will lose the joy. And people end up in miserable places. People think, you know, that by going out and living it up, partying, celebrating, it's going to bring them joy. You know what? It ends up empty. Many, many, many have gone that way and have realized that they have ended up empty, bankrupt, joyless, with no meaning and no hope. As the Bible says, he has the hope of a donkey or an ox. When they're dead and buried, they're gone. But when we place our hope and faith and joy in Jesus Christ, And his salvation and resurrection, his uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection, which is our salvation, is the basis for our joy and hope. Nothing can move us. What shall separate us from the love of God? What shall separate us from the love of God then? Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him. You cut off from the world, you're excised from the world, and now you are found in Christ, not in the world, in Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This principle of the flesh, how we have confidence in the flesh, it's written all over 
Paul's letters and, and Peter's letters. It's written all over the New Testament. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He that is born again has a completely reconstructed foundation, the solid rock, Jesus Christ. And we think that the flesh is probably what Galatians 5 says. Now these are the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, idolatry, wickedness, you name it, right? We think that the big gross sins, they're the flesh. The heinous, the heinous sins. But Paul was enumerating in Philippians 3, not big gross sins. They were relatively pretty good accomplishments. And he looked like a moral citizen. But he said, I counted them but dung. They had to be thrown away. I remember growing up, and I mentioned this before, playing football and cricket, and I got trophies, and I had them on my shelf. Something really to be proud of. But when I started coming to church, I realized I can't let any of this world influence me again. I took them and I threw them in the garbage. It's no joke. My trophies were gone. Years of practice, years of training, years of accolades, years of, of fulfillment in this world. But when it came to seeking Christ, I threw them in the garbage. They're but dung. The flesh is not just these big sins. The flesh is the way we think all the time. One example is Jesus gave it in, in Matthew chapter 7 when we judge each other. He said, be, he says, don't judge. You're not the judge. God is the judge. Don't judge. Why? We judge people according to our own standards. We, we judge people according to our own righteousness. And we come to conclusions. You know, that beggar on the street, he's a bum, he doesn't want to work. Why doesn't he get a job? I was talking to Lyubisha Milovanchev yesterday. And he told me, all the medical appointments and x-rays and blood work and all that kind of stuff, the bill came out to close to $200,000. I said, you're not going to pay that, are you? He said, no, he's, he's only going to pay a few, a few thousand, but he said, it made me think, it made me think, when I see people on the street now, they may have been well-to-do, they may have been well-off, and then they got hit with something like that, and they went bankrupt. And so when I look at people on the street like that, I think, well, I don't know his story. I judge from what I see, from what I know, from what I understand, and you know what that is? That's judging according to my law. That's judging according to my righteousness. When I put other people down. 
Just recently we had heard the sad news of Brother Mike Slattery passed away. There may have been many that may have judged him for his methods. For the way he did things. I would never do something like that. I would never go into a restaurant and talk to people in their face with tracts or at the bus stops. I would never do that. You know what he did? I hit him over the place several times. And he told me a lot of his stories, what he did and where he come from, how he was taken to, to Papua New Guinea as a little kid. Growing up 40 years in, in, in the Papua New Guinean jungles, if you will, while his father translated the New Testament. He had a rough life. Do you know he had a degree in history? Kent State. And some may judge him for his methods. But you know what he did? He did the best he could with what he had. which is perhaps far more than all of us have. When we judge people, Jesus is saying, you're taking the law into your own hands, you're judging according to the law of your own standards and your righteousness. And if you were to judge yourself on that, you would fail miserably. So come to the realization, come to the understanding that we have nothing that we can confide or can have confidence in our own flesh. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even judge my own self. He says, but I will wait until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous judge who will judge me. Don't let Satan, take away our joy. Don't believe the lies of the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. And living with the hope that God will one day fulfill his promises to you is the life that Paul is talking about and the life that he points back to the patriarchs in chapter 4 of Romans. How Abraham, he was the one that first initiated circumcision by God's command. How he, he trusted God. He had no confidence in the flesh. And these are daily decisions that we have to make. Every day we've got to make the decision, am I going to obey the flesh or am I going to obey, obey the promises of God? Abraham had a choice. Did he have confidence in Ur of the Chaldees? Or did he have confidence in the promises of God? Did he have confidence in his family that would be leave behind? Or would he have the confidence in God's promises? And when he came to the, to the new Canaan and the kings plundered him and took away his nephew Lot and he chased them down and he beat them 
And the king of Sodom comes to him and offers him uh, all the possessions and rewards. And Abraham said, I don't want to take that. In fact, I'm not going to take a thread from your latchet of your shoe. He rejected the treasures offered to him from this earth, but he had a city and a builder whose maker is God. He believed in the promises. He said, even against hope, even against hope, he believed in hope because he believed that even when he was going to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, he believed that he could even raise him from the dead, the commentary says. Was his hope in Isaac for the future seed? Was his hope in the promises of God, him being a father of many nations, laid in Isaac? No. He was going to cut him off. He was going to kill him until God stayed his hand. And then he learned again, God is my provider. And I need to promise not in Isaac, but the one who gave him Isaac. I need to, I need to uh, believe that I don't place my confidence and trust in things that God gives me, but in the giver. That makes a completely different view of life when we view it through those lenses. That we are not to trust in the flesh. That we are not to trust. Even if we don't, Abraham didn't understand it. Sometimes we don't understand it. But God says, do this. And in the end, he realized, you know what? God was always right. Father knows best. My dear friend outside of Jesus Christ, do you have these thoughts about you coming to Christ? You coming and giving your life up to Christ and surrendering them? Do you have thoughts that, you know, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can be faithful to the end. I still don't understand everything. And I need to understand everything before I fully surrender my life to him. Guess what? You're trusting in your flesh. You're trusting in you. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to take your eyes off of Jesus and place them on yourself. Oh boy. If you're asking me, why did Moses, why did Moses resist God when God says, you're going to take my children out of Egypt? Oh Lord, I'm slow of speech. I can't do it. What about Jeremiah? When God told him to, to preach the message to the remnants in Judah, what did Jeremiah say? Oh, I'm but a child. I'm... God said, Jeremiah, never mind. I will give you what you will say. You're going to pluck down, you're going to, you're, going, you're going to destroy nations with your message. You're going to uproot what I give you, you speak. You're just the messenger, remember that. You're not God. You're just the messenger. And that's what God wants us to do. Be messengers. Messengers of peace. Messengers of the gospel. It shouldn't be laborious and onerous for us to preach, but it's safe. 
I pray that God, in his mercy and grace, let us not approach God as some of these false teachers would want us to. To take our eyes off Jesus and view God as some kind of a a judge that's going to cut us down at every wrong move, that he's only a judge and not a merciful father, take our eyes off Jesus, remove grace from ourselves and say, well, until I, I can accept that I'm good enough, I won't surrender my life to Jesus. I won't do what God asked me to do. To him be the glory evermore. Amen.